Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech Thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of Thy favor and glad to do Thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people the multitude brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. And do with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble suffer not our trust in thee to fail. All which we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There are some great prayers in the prayer book on page 820 and following. Prayers for the national life, and that's just one of them. So I commend those to you uh, for the present President of the United States and for the President-elect. Well, today we are in Acts chapter 3. We have moved into this room. I know it's not nearly as intimate as what we had before, but... Intimacy and discomfort were, we were getting a trade-off there, I think, to some degree. And um, even though we were putting more seats in, people were still having to sit in the windows, uh, which is not particularly comfortable. So uh, this is a great opportunity for us. We'll try this out, see how it goes. If over the course of the next several weeks I drive many of you away and we dwindle back down, well, we can always move to a smaller space. But God willing, we will provide the space that you need. Uh, as we study God's Word. Well, we are in Acts chapter 3 today, and we are beginning at the first verse. Uh, as a matter of fact, what we're probably going to do is just go ahead and read through the entire chapter. It's a relatively short chapter, and uh, as you know, I rather like to move through things at a somewhat methodical pace, um, but we'll probably go right through this entire chapter today because it's, it's really one story, one whole So Acts chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered a temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, 
the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, what we have here in Acts chapter 3 is the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts. Now, the emphasis you'll see on the screen is on the word recorded. This is not the first miracle of the Christian age. If Pentecost is the birthday of the church, there were other miracles that were taking place from Pentecost until this account in Acts chapter 3. Well, how do we know that? Well, if you turn back just a page or two to Acts chapter 2, verse 43, you'll read this. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we know that there were lots of miracles, lots of astonishing things that were taking place. And the New Testament describes these miracles as signs and wonders, the things that accompanied an apostle. So the miracles that the apostles were doing, which we said was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the book of Acts is really about the continuing work of Jesus Christ, we said, in and through the lives of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus still at work. He's basically doing the same things that he had done over the course of his three-year earthly ministry. He cleansed lepers on the border of Samaria. He raised people from the dead. Uh, he made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. Well, the disciples, now the apostles, witnesses to the resurrection, were doing precisely the same things. So this is the first recorded miracle. There were others that are not recorded. And that's something, too, to remember about the New Testament, about the Gospels and about the book of Acts. These accounts are not complete accounts. The authors are not writing down everything that Jesus ever said and ever did. Like all authors, all writers, they're being selective with their material. They have a point that they want to make, and they are using the material selectively. Every biographer does that same thing. 
Uh, that's one of the reasons why you can have 32 biographies of somebody like Abraham Lincoln, and everyone's a little bit different. Now, some of the information is the same, of course, but you may find that it's organized in a slightly different way because the author is trying to make a point about the life of the subject. Well, understand that that is true in the New Testament. So we shouldn't expect that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to have all exactly the same stories. As a matter of fact, if all the stories were exactly the same in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that should give us pause. That implies collusion. (laughs) And that's not what we have here. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, If you keep your finger there in the book of Acts and just turn back to the Gospel of John, turn to the 20th chapter of John for just a moment. Because John acknowledges this very point. John chapter 20, we're coming very close to the end of the story here. John chapter 20, verse 30, next to the last chapter here in the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 30, here's what John writes. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are what? Not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is telling us he's not including everything. And he repeats that message. Look at the very last verse of the Gospel of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John is telling us in no uncertain terms that he's being selective with his material. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament writers included four different Gospels, because each one of the Gospel writers has a particular emphasis that he wants to bring out about the person and work of Jesus. If you go through Luke's Gospel, for example, you'll see that there's a special emphasis upon Jesus' healing ministry. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, because Luke was a what? He was a physician. (laughs) So naturally, as a physician, he was interested in Jesus' ability to restore people to perfect health. Physically, but not just physically, spiritually. In John's gospel, it's interesting to note, the miracles are never described as miracles. Never does that word miracle really appear in the gospel of John. You know how they're described? Signs. Now, what's a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to a destination. It's not the destination itself. If you're traveling up I-95 and you want to stop at a place called South of the Border. (laughs) Now, heaven only knows why you'd want to do that, but let's just say you do. You're traveling up I-95, and you want to go to South of the Border. Do you stop at the sign that says, only five miles to Pedro at South of the Border? (laughs) Do you stop at that sign that says, you just passed air-conditioned rooms, H-E-I-R, conditioned rooms at South of the Border? No, because we recognize that the sign is not the thing itself. It simply points you. Well, what John is telling us when he describes the Lord's miracles as signs is that the signs, the miracles, are not an end in and of themselves. They point us to the destination who is the Lord. So I just want you to understand why we have different Gospels and why the authors are being selected with their material. There is a particular point that they want to bring out. 
So, Luke has already acknowledged the fact that the apostles were doing many signs and wonders. But this is the first recorded one. So if that's the case, then you have to pause and you have to ask yourself, well, why does he record this particular one? Why does he do that? What's he getting at that he should record the first of these miracles? Well, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But that's the question we should be asking ourselves. And there is a reason why he records this first recorded miracle. But I want to say something before we get to that about miracles. You know, we live in a skeptical age. We are enlightenment people, most of us sitting in this room. Now, there are people that say that we're living in a, um, really, a a postmodern culture. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't buy into the myth of postmodernity. I just don't. I don't think there's anything like a postmodern society at all. I think it's just modernity run amok. I'm just going to be honest with you, and there's a whole reason for that, but we don't have time to go into it today. But we are all, every single one of us, post-enlightenment people. That is, we are the products of the Enlightenment and the rationalism that came out of the 18th century. That is to say, unless it makes sense scientifically, I cannot accept that it's true. Uh, This is one of the reasons why Thomas Jefferson, and by the way, Thomas Jefferson was a great founding father. He's one of my heroes. As a matter of fact, we have a large bust of Thomas Jefferson in our house as you go up the main staircase. But Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian, folks. I hate to, if you thought that, I'm, I'm, I'm bursting your bubble. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. And he had his own version of the Bible. It was called the Jefferson Bible. And whereas my Bible was this nice, thick volume, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, if you were to really pare it down, would be about the size of a magazine. (laughs) Uh, One night, when he was president of the United States, Jefferson went through with a pair of scissors and with paste, and he cut out all of those portions of the Bible which he considered to be, quote, unreasonable. They didn't measure up to rational thought, and guess what went? All the miracles. All of the miracles. Because he said, you can't prove these scientifically. It certainly did. Which is one of the reasons why I said he's a great founding father, genius, brilliant mind, but not a Christian. (laughs) Doesn't mean he doesn't deserve a monument down in Washington, D.C. It just means that he wasn't a Christian. But he had a problem with the concept of miracles. And I think many people today still have a problem with the concept of miracles. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, well, if God would just part the Red Seas for me, if if God would just do something dramatic like he did for those apostles, that I could believe? I mean, Thomas had a decided advantage over the rest of us, didn't he? Thomas said, unless I can take my hand and put it in the nail prints, and put my hand in his side, what? I'll not believe. And Jesus appeared and said, here, Thomas, come on over here. Can you imagine what Thomas must have been feeling like at that moment? (laughs) I think when Jesus appeared and pulled back his cloak and showed that gaping wound and said, all right, Thomas, come on over here. I think Thomas, I got it. Don't worry about it. There's a famous picture, uh, a medieval artwork, that shows Jesus pulling Thomas's finger into the wound in his hand. It's almost as though the Lord was saying, no, 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 Thomas. You said you had to see. You had to touch. Well, by golly, you're going to do it. 
I think that's where we are oftentimes in our culture, isn't it? We have a hard time believing in the miraculous. Well, I think C.S. Lewis is very helpful when it comes to miracles and understanding how miracles work. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. I know that's a lot of script up there on the screen, so I'll read it to you. Lewis said, you are probably right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. Now, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Stop looking at the screen and look at me for just a minute. One of the reasons why you're never going to see a miracle done, and why we shouldn't expect to see miracles on a regular basis, is because if they happened on a regular basis, would they be miracles? See, miracles are, by definition, things that are few and far between. They are, by definition, few and far between. They wouldn't be miraculous if they were commonplace. We might say they're amazing, but we wouldn't call them miraculous. Lewis goes on to say this. He said, you are probably right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. If your own life does not happen to be near one of those great ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? And I love this next part. He says, unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely it is that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide. That we should see miracles is even less likely. Nor, if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. For nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch together about the same areas of history. Areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. Now you think for a moment about biblical history. The Bible is filled with the story of sacred history. But you don't see miracles happening at every, every point in sacred history. There seemed to be a great period when the prophets were out preaching to the people and nothing seemed to be happening. But then there are those great moments where God is moving and the people didn't even recognize it until they were in the midst of it. And all of a sudden, great things were happening. Do you remember when the Lord appeared to Moses on the mount in the burning bush? And he said, Moses, I want you to go and appear before Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go. And do you remember what Moses said? He said, Lord, I know these people. He said, what will be the sign that you are going to go with us? For hundreds of years, the Israelites had been what? Slaves. And the question they were going to ask when Moses has come to them and said, the God of your fathers has decided to deliver you from your bondage, from your bondage here in Egypt, making bricks without straw. He's coming. They're going to say, who is this God? Where's he been for the past 400, 500 years? Where's he been? 
See, Moses knew that that's exactly what people were going to say. And that's exactly what people say today. Ah, yeah, God's supposed to be at work. Well, where is he? But then when God did, the moment had come and he did decide to deliver his people, how did he do it? The scripture says, by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm, the plagues came upon Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Because that was one of those great crossroads of history. Now, it's not a great crossroad of what we would call secular history. When we think about history being post-enlightenment people, we think about secular history, world history. We think in terms of peace treaties, don't we? We think in terms of wars. We think of World War I or World War II or the war between the states or whatever it may be. That's how we think of history. But sacred history is something very different. If you want to hear more about that, you're going to have to come and hear me preach on Sunday because I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Because, get this, here's something to whet your appetite a little bit. The gospel lesson for this Sunday is about the end times, the last days. When are they? When are the end times? When are the last days? According to the New Testament, we're in them. We are in the last days. I'm going to give you just a preview of the sermon. What the heck? (laughs) If you want to imagine history, imagine history divided into three great sections. Sacred history, not world history. You know, we divide up American history in terms of the revolutionary period, the Federalist era, uh, the Civil War era, uh, the 20th century. That's how we divide up history. The Bible divides up history into three great parts. The first part is that whole period of time between the fall of man and the coming of the long-promised Messiah foretold in Genesis. And the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That's the first segment of history. From the fall of man until the coming of that long-promised Messiah. The second stage of history is that period of time between the Lord's birth and his death and resurrection. Now, that segment of history is relatively small compared to that first segment. But that's the second segment of history. What's the third segment of history? It's that indefinite period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. Now, how long is that period of time? We don't know. We don't know. But we must never think that it's not going to come to fulfillment. We have the past sacred history that is evidence of God's action in time and space. So I want you to understand God does perform miracles. I absolutely believe that. But miracles are, by definition, rare. And they generally do happen at the great crossroads of sacred history. When the Messiah appeared on earth and was born in Bethlehem, miracles began to happen. At the beginning of the life of the church, when the apostles were there bearing witness to Jesus Christ, miracles happened in a big way. Which is not to say that they do not happen today. I do not want to imply that for one minute. All I'm saying is that C.S. Lewis is correct. They generally tend to bunch up at the great crossroads of history. And he is also right, at those great crossroads of history, when God is doing great things, persecution has a tendency to rise. And we see that. 
with Jesus. As he was doing great things, what were the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious establishment, always out there trying to do to him? Discredit him in the eyes of the people and ultimately crucify him. What do we see happening to the apostles? Well, we're going to see that one of the reasons why this first miracle, this is the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts, is because it is also the thing that leads to the first persecution of the church. So we need to realize that when great things are happening, when God is at work in a mighty and powerful way, there is likely to be pushback from the enemy. So those are just some things to keep in mind when people come to you and you say, oh, I know. God would part the Red Sea, I'd believe it. Another thing to say about that is, there's no guarantee even if you saw it, you'd believe it. C.S. Lewis uh, put this very well in his book, Miracles. He said he only met one person in, that, in his life that ever claimed to have seen a ghost. And he said the, the irony was that that person didn't believe in the immortal soul before they saw the apparition, and they didn't believe in the immortal soul after they saw the apparition. So when people say, if God would just part the Red Sea, I could believe. Really? What if he did part the Red Sea? Most people would probably scratch their heads and say, there's got to be a natural explanation for that. And we would spend all of our time and our energy trying to explain it away. And I think we see that in a skeptical age. That's sort of what happens in an Enlightenment culture. This is a miracle, but it's happening at one of the great ganglions of history, one of the great crossroads of history. Now, we come back to that question, well, why is this particular miracle recorded? Well, we said that it is the occasion of the first persecution of the church. Jesus had told his disciples, as the world has hated me, so it's going to hate you. If the world treated me badly, it's going to treat you badly. This is the first occasion of persecution in the life of the church. It is also the occasion of Peter's second sermon. The first sermon was on what? The day of Pentecost. This is the second recorded sermon that we have of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. So, what's the background here? Well, Peter and John were Jews. It's interesting, they never regarded themselves as Christians. They didn't actually begin to be called Christians until Antioch. They were called Christians first at Antioch, Christ ones. Up to this point, they regarded themselves simply as what? Faithful Jews who recognized that the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah had appeared on the scene. So as good Jews, when it was time to go to the temple, they did what? They went to the temple. They were trained to do so. There's a real connection in some ways when you think about it between Judaism and Roman Catholicism in this respect. I had some, growing up, most of the people in my neighborhood were Roman Catholic. We were about the only Protestants in the bunch. They were all Roman Catholics, and boy, I, you'd never know they were even religious, but they never missed Mass. They, they showed up on a regular basis. It was just one of the things that you did every Saturday night. And uh, my mother's best friend was Roman Catholic. And in those, how many remember that game, Trivial Pursuit? We would always have a Trivial Pursuit night every Saturday night. And the families would get together and we'd play Trivial Pursuit. And we always wondered how it was that Mrs. Dill seemed to do so well. We discovered that she was going to Mass on Saturday night. And as the, the uh, pastor was up there, the priest was up there delivering the homily, she was studying the cards for Trivial Pursuit. And we thought it was some sort of divine revelation. It had nothing to do with that whatsoever. But she never missed Mass. She never missed Mass. 
Well, good Jews don't miss worship. And if you're in Jerusalem, you go to the temple. And so that's what Peter and John were doing. We're told at the appointed time, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And as they're making their way up, they have to pass through what was known as the temple gate called Beautiful, otherwise known as the Golden Gate. And they're passing through. This is the main entrance. It's the entrance, incidentally, that Jesus took when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So it's the main entrance into the temple complex. And there, sitting outside the gate, there is this man begging for alms. Why is he there? It's a strategic location. You're getting people as they're preparing to go into the temple to worship. So you're sort of pulling on their heartstrings. First of all, you've got a huge number of people going in. So that's advantageous. And furthermore, they're going into worship. They know what the law says, that you're supposed to have compassion on the widowed and the orphaned and the needy. And so he's pulling on their heartstrings. People know how to do that sort of thing. But he's not really interested in the people. He's interested in what they can give him. How do we know that? Because we're told that he's holding something. I don't know what he was. Uh, his tin cup or whatever he used in those days to beg for alms. And look at what the text says here. It says, And Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, Look at us! which tells us the man wasn't even looking at them. He's holding up his cup or whatever it is that he's begging with, and he's looking for somebody else. Once I get it from these guys, who am I going to get from over here? And Peter says, look at us. And the man's gaze immediately goes to Peter and John. So that's the scene here. That's, that's what's happening here. And Peter and John say the very words that the man did not want to hear. How many times have we on the streets of Charleston or some other place seen somebody offer you something, whether it's one of those palmetto roses, and and you say, here, here, would you like this? Sure. That'll be $5. Oh, here, have it back or whatever it is. How many times we see people out there on the streets begging and we go by them? Well, Peter and John didn't just walk by. They said, look at us. Well, this man must have looked up with hopefulness. I'm going to get something. And then he hears those terrible words, silver and gold have we none. But what we have, we'll give to you. What am I going to get? I've done that to people sometimes. When I used to live in Washington, D.C., people would come up and say, can I have $10 for a sandwich? And I said, no, but I'll go buy you a sandwich. Forget it. (laughs) Which tells you that what? I didn't really want a sandwich. Well, this was a case where this man really wanted silver and gold. He didn't want anything else that Peter had to offer. But Peter knew what the man needed, not what he wanted. And so he said, look at us. Silver and gold we do not have. I like the King James Version in this. Silver and gold have we none. But what we do have, we'll give to you. And he takes the man by the hand and he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And all of a sudden we're told, that the man felt a strengthening in his ankles and he was able to stand on his own two feet. It was an extraordinary thing, precisely the same sort of thing that Jesus would have done. 
maybe a little bit different. You know, in John's gospel, um, Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, and he was walking along, and he saw a man who was lame. And he went up to the man. We're told in that place there were many people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed is the way they were described. And Jesus went up to one man who we're told had been lame for 30-some years, and he asked him a question. Do you want to be made well? Why do you reckon Jesus answered the, asked the man that question? In one sense, you'd think to yourself, well, it makes all the sense. Of course he wants to be made well. That's why all these sick people were there. They were at this pool, which was built over some sort of artesian spring. They believed that an angel came and stirred the water, and the first person in got healed. And he said, well, the problem is I, I can't ever get into the water in order to be healed. And Jesus said, that's not the question. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you, can you get into the water? I didn't ask the question, are you the first one or the last? I asked you the question, do you want to be made well? Now you might think to yourself, well, of course he does. Not necessarily. Listen, folks. We may say that we want to be made well. But do we really want it? I think Jesus was answer, asking that man the question because if you are made well, not just physically but spiritually, your life has to change. This man could no longer be dependent on others. He was going to have to become self-sufficient if he was made well, wasn't he? There are many people out there that say, I want to change, but they really don't. They're like St. Augustine in his great works, The Confessions. St. Augustine in his early days was a young man. He lived a very licentious lifestyle. He was wealthy. He had uh, lots of girlfriends. And he knew that God was working on his heart, that he needed to get serious about the faith. His mother was a devout Christian. And he wrote in his confessions on one day, Oh, Lord, make me chaste. But not yet. <laughs> you know, there are lots of people like that. They want to change. They say they want to be different. They want to get serious about the faith. But do they really mean it? Do they really mean it? Do we really mean it? When we say we want to get serious about our faith, do we really mean it? When we say Jesus is not only my Savior, but He's my Lord, do we really mean that? Because you know what it means for Jesus to be your Lord? It means that He commands you. He commands your very life, every aspect of your being. You are an instrument yielded to his use. Well, Peter doesn't do that here. But he does heal the man. And the man is thrilled. And we're told that as Peter and John head up into the temple. I, I always imagine, of course, they didn't have wristwatches in those days. But when I imagine it in my mind's eye, I can almost imagine Peter, you know, standing there talking to the fellow. And John saying, oh, Peter, come on. We're going to be late for church. Let's go. I hear the bells. Let's go. And so they continue on into the temple precincts, and we're told that this man is following them, clinging to them, shouting, jumping, praising God. And a crowd begins to gather because of the commotion, and also because that they recognize that this man is the same man who used to be brought to the temple gate begging for alms, a man who'd been there for 30-some years, and now he's walking about. What's happened to him? And what does Peter do? How many of you know what the phrase carpe diem means? Seize the, day. Seize the day. Peter recognizes that he has been given an opportunity. He's got a crowd. Well, if you've got a crowd, what do you do? Preach a sermon. That's, that's, what, that's what a preacher does. 
You either preach a sermon or you take up a collection. That's one of the two things that a preacher does. He realizes that an opportunity has presented itself. This is one of the things I want you to notice about those early days of the church. In the early days of the church, the apostles... I'm taking away my... I apologize, I'm getting worked up, getting hot. In the early days of the church, one of the things that I want you to notice is that they were not proactive in sharing their faith. As a matter of fact, we're going to notice that the church doesn't really become proactive in sharing its faith until Acts chapter 13, so we've got a while to go yet. They are reactive. As opportunities present themselves, they share the faith. Now, when you get to Acts chapter 13, you will discover that they become missional-minded. That is to say they actually decide that they are going to send out missionaries, be proactive to areas where the gospel has never been heard. But at this point, they're just getting things started. And as the opportunities present themselves, they share the good news. But good for Peter, because he realized that he had an opportunity. He could have healed that man and rushed into worship and missed an opportunity to share the gospel. How many opportunities do we let slip by? As Christians, we need to realize that every single day presents us with an opportunity. Every day that the Lord gives you to live is another opportunity to share the gospel. And the question is, will you recognize the opportunities when they come? And when they come, will you carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment, seize the opportunity? Peter did that. He saw he had an opportunity, and he did not let that opportunity go by. Listen, folks, the things we will regret at the end of our lives is the opportunities missed. And it won't be missed business opportunities. It will be those opportunities that we missed to tell those we loved that we really loved them. It will be those opportunities that we missed to really share with our loved ones the things that matter most, our faith. I've said this before to some people, maybe here. I've been with lots of people over the course of 20-some years in ministry, and I've been with lots of people as they're dying. And I've heard people utter all kinds of regrets at the end of their life. I've never, ever, ever, in 20-some years of being with people as they're dying, ever heard anybody utter the regret, Gee, I wish I had gone to the office one more day. I never heard anybody say, oh, gee, I wish I'd spent another hour on the golf course. But I've heard people utter all kinds of regrets, like I wish I'd told my children that I'd love them. I wish I'd told my daughter that I forgive her. I wish I had gotten serious about my faith with Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of regrets that we have in our lives, all kinds of missed opportunities. Every time you get up in the morning, pray the prayer, Lord, I know this day has opportunities for me. Grant me the grace to recognize them and grant me the courage to seize them. Carpe diem. Well, that's what Peter did. He seized the moment and he preached a sermon. And uh, you see what the sermon is. Uh, It's a remarkable sermon like the one that we saw 
before. He says, beginning at verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? It is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers who has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Not only does Peter seize the day, seize the opportunity, but he puts the focus where the focus belongs. These people were awed by Peter. Look at what these guys have done. They've healed a man. They have the power to restore people to health. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful thing. What a temptation it would have been for Peter. You know, the old expression, pride goes before the fall. Think about Peter, if you were in Peter's position. Peter had been a common fisherman. He was not known. He was not recognized. He was not among the establishment. And to have performed a miracle like that, and for people to recognize it, all of a sudden the attention was on Peter. What a temptation to say, yeah, fellas, never noticed me before. Look what I can do. But Peter never did that. He seized the opportunity to witness, and when he witnessed, the focus was on Jesus. He even says that. He says, why are you looking at us as though by our own power or our own piety we made this man walk? I tell you, it is by the name of Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, that's a courageous thing to say to people. You killed him. You, Bill Warlick, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. No, you say that sort of thing, and I know Bill, so I can say that sort of thing to him. He didn't actually do it. We all did it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We were all there, let me tell you. But that's the sort of thing. They, Peter was in their face about this. It's a courageous witness, and it is a witness that centers not on Peter, but on Jesus. And he makes it very clear. He says, look, it's this Jesus. What Jesus? You know, Jesus was a common name. Jesus was like Joe today. In fact, the names Mary and Joseph were very common names, like Mary and Joe Smith. You go through a telephone directory and you see Mary and Joe Smith, you're not surprised. Those are common names. Well, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were common names. As a matter of fact, this is, this is what's interesting. Many people don't know this. When Jesus was brought before, for trial before Pontius Pilate, There was a custom at that time of the year to release a prisoner. Who was the prisoner? Barabbas. Barabbas. Did you know that his real name was Jesus Barabbas? Jesus, son, well, it was Jesus, the son of Abbas. Barabbas means the son of Abbas. So Pontius Pilate thought that he would play around with the crowd a little bit. He said, do you want me to release to you Jesus of Nazareth or... Jesus, the son of Abbas, which, which Jesus do you want? And they said, we want that one, not that one. But these were common names, you see. These were common names, not unusual. So when they said, well, what Jesus are you talking about? 
Peter said to Jesus, you crucified. That's the one. The one you have crucified by your sins. So Peter is not only pointing them to Jesus, he is also pointing them to their sins. You will never recognize the value of Jesus Christ until you recognize, my friend, that you are a sinner. It's the only way. It's a hard thing for us. But Jesus Christ came into this world to do what? Save sinners. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you'll, you'll never appreciate that. That's one of the reasons why I love the Right One liturgy. Some of my friends in the priesthood prefer the Right Two liturgy. It's more contemporary, and I get all of that. But I've got to be honest with you. I'm a great sinner. I can't speak for you, but I am a great sinner, and I need a great Savior. And so when I confess my sins, I acknowledge and bewail my manifold sins. I, I'd like to say I only have a few of them, but it's not true. When I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, um, years ago, I had a lady in the congregation. I moved the congregation from doing the right two liturgy to doing the right one liturgy. I was only 26 years old at the time. And um, I knew I was going to get flack. Fitz Allison once said to me, it doesn't matter if you preach heresy from the pulpit, but don't move the church furniture. Uh, <laughs> they'll ride you out on a rail. And I also knew that, you know, changing the liturgy was like moving the church furniture. Don't do that. But I did it anyway. Fools rush in where angels fear to go. And a uh, fool rushed in. And I knew I was going to get flack. And I did. But it came from a totally different quarter than the one I expected. I expected the younger members of the congregation to say, I don't like all those these and the thous. One of the younger members of the congregation came up to me. Um, she was in her 30s at the time. You're older than I was. But she had a young family. She said, I just love this liturgy. And I said, why? And she goes, let me tell you, I was a hellion in college. She said, I was in a sorority. She said, we were doing all kinds of things we shouldn't have been doing. And when it says my manifold sins, she said, that's me. She said, when I hear those words in that prayer of humble access, but thou art the same God whose property is always to have mercy. She said, oh. The grief I got was from the older members of the congregation. I had one lady who shall remain nameless because Catherine Jones probably knows her. Um, <laughs> Catherine knows everybody, so um, she shall remain nameless. But she came up to me when she one day, and she said, I hate this liturgy, this old liturgy. And I said, well, why is that? She said, my manifold sins and wickedness. She said, I'm 89. I don't have that many sins to confess. <laughs> really? See, it's not just what we do. It's what we think, isn't it? God's the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. Unless you recognize that you're a sinner, folks. This is one of those things I've, you've heard me say before, and you're going to hear me say it as long as I'm here. 30 years, whatever it is, I'm here. You're going to hear me say it. Why is it that we can sing with gusto, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? We call ourselves wretches, but if the preacher climbs into the pulpit and calls you a wretch, ooh, it gets me mad. Why is that? If you came up to me and said, Jeff Miller, you're a miserable wretch, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I am. I am a miserable wretch. I may look polished and impressive here on the outside, but I've got to tell you, folks, I am a sinner. But he's a great Savior. Those who have been forgiven much love 
much. And you'll never love Jesus unless you are brought to that point where you realize just how broken and fallen and sinful you really are. So let another prayer of your heart be, Lord, reveal to me my own sins. Because, you know, there are some sins in our lives we're not even aware of. They're attitudes. They're prejudices that we have. They're hidden from us. We don't even recognize them. The closer you get to the light, the more it will reveal the cracks and the blemishes. This is why I always say, that's why we have romantic dinners by candlelight and not under the fluorescence. Because candlelight hides all those flaws. But boy, when you turn on the bright lights, you see it all. That's what Peter was doing. He was forcing these people to recognize who Jesus was and to recognize what they had done to him. A miracle has taken place, but the reason the miracle has taken place is because Jesus has done it. And it's the same Jesus you crucified. And we've all done that. One of the great hymns of the church, I don't know if I have a hymnal here, um, 598, maybe 498, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and mock thy saving kingship then with thorns by which they crown thee. And still our wrongs may weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. Did you hear those words? Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth upon a cross, they bound thee. They mock thy saving kingship then with thorns by which they crown thee. But still our wrongs do weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. Well, that is what Peter was doing, forcing them to realize that they had crucified the Lord of glory. Forcing them to acknowledge their manifold sins and wickedness. What's the next thing that Peter does in this sermon? And by the way, this is something, again, another pattern for us when it comes to witnessing. How do I witness? Well, one of the things you do is you need to always point away from yourself to Jesus Christ. Never let anybody think that you have all the answers. Never let anybody think that you're the destination. When you witness to Jesus Christ, seize the opportunities that they present themselves, but when they come, always point away from yourself, point to Jesus. Always remind people why they need Jesus. Why do they need Jesus? Because they're sinners. And he's a savior. That's part of our witness. And then what do you do? You go for the sale. You must always go for the sale when you witness. Call them to repentance. If this is true... If, if there is a God of justice, a, a holy God, and, and of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, holiness is the one that is used more than any other. If it is a holy God, and you are a sinful and fallen people, and a holy God cannot abide by sinful humanity, then what? And God has sent a Savior. It's not me, but it's Jesus. And He sent a Savior that all who believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, if there's a way, then what? You need to repent. You know, I, people always say to me, oh, I don't know. I, I, I just can't believe that there's only one way to the Father. You ever hear people say that sort of thing in our culture today? Oh, I believe that if God was fair, he'd make sure that there are many ways. But you Christians don't believe that. Well, we don't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and what? No one comes to the Father but by me. Our culture wants to believe there are many ways to be saved. 
that all religions basically end up in the same place, that they're all roads that lead to the same destination, that all the rivers of faith basically flow into the same great ocean. Oh, yes, some routes are a little more circuitous than others, but eventually you get there. Some routes are more scenic, some are more direct, but eventually we all end up in the same place. Baloney. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear. It's called the, the doctrine of radical particularity. There's only one way, and every other way is a dead end. Now, people find that offensive. I want to know why. Why is it offensive that there's only one way? Let's look at it from God's perspective. We ought to rejoice that there is a way. God doesn't have to provide any means for us to be saved. How many sinners do I have out there this morning? All right. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is what? Death. So, if we're all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God, then that means we all deserve what? Death. So, if God gave us what we deserve, what would we get? Okay. This is something to remember. Nobody in this life ever gets injustice when it comes to God. You either get justice, which is what you deserve, or you get what you don't deserve, which is mercy. But nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets injustice. You either get what you deserve or what you don't deserve. And so that's what we've got to say to people. Yeah, there is a way. But thank God there's a way. There's only one way, but there's a way. The man who's drowning does not complain that somebody threw him a rope instead of came by and picked him up in a boat. He takes hold of the rope. And this is what Peter was saying to that man. He was saying, look, a miracle has taken place. God is at work, but it's not me. It's Jesus. What Jesus? The Jesus you crucified. The Jesus we crucified. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? We were all there. We all did it. But God has sent a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Go for the sale. So what are you going to do? Repent. What does the word repent mean? It means to turn. It means to do a 180. The idea is that you are on a path that is going to lead you to destruction. A bridge is out up ahead. And the sign that says bridge out is a call to repentance. And that's what we've got to say to people. Listen, you're on a path that is going to lead you to destruction. There's a bridge out ahead. And God is calling you to repent, to turn, and to come back. Now's the time to do it. That's what Peter was saying to these people. Why should you repent? Verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out. There is no feeling in the world worse than guilt and shame. How many of you have ever felt guilty and ashamed? And you can try, try as hard as you might to get rid of those feelings, but if they don't, they can drive you to despair. There's nothing that can drive you to despair more than guilt and shame. And what Peter is saying, why should you repent? Why should you turn and come back to the Lord? So that your guilt may be blotted out. Your guilt may be blotted out. That's the first reason. We don't take sin seriously these days, folks. There was a book written some years ago by a man named Cornelius Planiga, and the book was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. 
A Breviary of Sin. And in the first chapter of that little book, he said this. He said, there used to be a time when sin cast a long shadow across the lives of men and women. He said, there was a time when Catholics would line up to make their confession to the priest. He said, there was a time when Protestants would rise up and say the general confession. He said, there was a time when a man who lost his temper at the breakfast table might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion. There was a time when a woman who envied her older and more attractive sister might wonder if that threatened her very salvation. He said, but alas, the shadow has now dimmed. And the accusation, you have sinned, is more often than not said with a certain tone and with a wink that signals an inside joke. Jeff Miller, you old sinner. He said, but we must never forget that it is sin that drove the nails through the hands of Jesus Christ. And every time you and I sin, we are driving those nails again and we crucify him all over again. If you think sin is a small thing, some years ago I went to the Outback Steakhouse and they had a dessert on there called the Sydney's Sinful Sunday. That's how we think of it, isn't it? It's sinfully delicious. But sin is a grievous thing, my friends. What is sin? Sin is doing anything that God forbids. And it's failing to do anything that God commands. That's what sin is, pure and simple. It's doing anything that He forbids. It's failing to do anything that He commands. We call those sins of omission and sins of commission. So it's not just what we do, it's what we fail to do. How many of us say our prayers regularly? How many of us really do give generously to the life of the church? How many of us are never envious, never boastful, never proud? All those things, you see. And Peter is reminding the people of them. He's saying, you want this so that your sin may be blotted out. Dr. Carl Memminger uh, was the founder of the famous Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. As you know, he's a great psychiatrist. And he wrote a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? And this is what a medical doctor had to say. He said, sin was once a word on everyone's mind, but it is now rarely, if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in our troubles? Has no one committed sin? Where indeed did sin go? Many former sins have become crimes and therefore what? The responsibility of the state. Others are now classified as sickness. And as a result, a psychiatrist and their medications deal with these sins. Something called collective responsibility has made it possible to transfer sin from our own responsibility to the society as a whole. But sin is an aggressive quality, a ruthlessness, a hurting, a breaking away from God and from the rest of humanity, a partial alienation or an act of rebellion. Sin has a willful, defiant, or disloyal quality. Someone is defied or hurt. Every Sunday, we say the Lord's Prayer. And we ask, forgive us our what? Trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, I know the Presbyterians say debts. 
But for the sake of argument, think in terms of trespasses today. Forgive us our trespasses. Why do we say that? When you trespass, what have you done? Well, you've disobeyed, but you've done more than that. When you trespass onto somebody else's property, what have you done? You've entered into a territory or an area that is forbidden. It is not yours. We had a neighbor, we lived in a small town, we had a neighbor that used to say, trespassers, beware of flying objects. Or unidentified flying objects. They may be bullets, is what the sign said. We knew that if we stepped onto that, it wasn't our property. Why do we say, forgive us our trespasses? Because every time we sin, we have trespassed onto God's territory. Back in the days of ancient Rome, Caesar was ordered by the Senate not to cross the Rubicon. That if he crossed the Rubicon, there would be what? War. As long as he stayed on his side and the Senate stayed on their side, peace. What did Caesar do? Did he remain on his side? No, he charged into the river with the words, the die is cast. And there erupted this great civil war, this great conflict. Well, every time you and I sin, we have trespassed on God's territory. We have charged into the river saying the die is cast. But here's the problem. You declare war on God and you can't win. God is the offended party. Now, in that kind of a war, the aggressor, if they are defeated, have to do what? Surrender. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. 1945, they surrendered on board a, a, an American battleship. And you know what? It was an unconditional and immediate surrender. And did you know that the guns of the USS Missouri were actually loaded at the time of the surrender ceremony? Loaded and aimed at the mainland. Surrender or we open fire. Did they really have a choice? After the dropping of two atomic bombs, they really have a choice. They have a choice. But here's the amazing thing about God. He's the offended party. We've declared war on him. We can't win the war. But instead of us trying to make peace with him, he comes to make peace with us. He loves the offender in spite of the offense. And he sends his very own son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be a prince of peace. To make peace between God and us. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, oh, you've sinned, but come to the Lord. You can't win this war. Come that your sins may be blotted out and that what? That times of refreshment may come to you. How many of you feel like sometimes you're just parched and dried? There's nothing left. How many of you would like to be refreshed? I know I do. The times of refreshment may come. And first of all, he says, to you. We must all realize we're all sinners. And our sins are much more grievous than we can even imagine. And if we don't think that we're really sinners, then that just goes to show how sinful we really are. But God, who is rich in mercy, loves the offender. 
and sends his son to make peace with us. This Jesus, whom we crucified, God has raised from the dead. Come to him, Peter says, that your sins may be blotted out and that you may be refreshed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for yet another stirring message from the book of Acts, Lord. We are sinners. Grant us the grace, Lord, to see ourselves as we really are, not as we imagine ourselves to be, but grant us the grace to see ourselves as we really are, but not to despair, knowing that a Savior has come, that you come to bring peace. And grant us the grace, Lord, to repent, to turn away from these things, the, the idols of this life, and to come back to you that we may be refreshed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.